0: young Lucy has to enter a magician's house, find a particular room, find a book, and recite a spell in order to save her siblings and her friends uh, who are being held hostage by the Duffelpuds. Not Not a very uh, intimidating group, but they didn't know it at the time. And so this is what she does. She secretly enters the house, finds the book, uh, and Lewis describes her encounter with the book like this. She went up to the desk and laid her hand on the book. Her fingers tingled when she touched it, as if it were full of electricity. She tried to open it, but couldn't at first. This, however, was only because it was fastened by two leaden clasps. And when she had undone these, it opened easily enough. And what a book it was! On one page, she came to a spell for the refreshment of the spirit. The pictures were fewer here, but very beautiful, and what Lucy found herself reading was more like a story than a spell. It went on for three pages, and when she had got to the bottom of the page, she had forgotten that she was reading it all. She was living in the story as if it were real, and all the pictures were real, too. When she had got to the third page and come to the end, she said, that is the loveliest story I have ever read or ever shall read in my whole life. Oh, I wish I could have gone on reading it for 10 years. At least I'll read it over again. The brilliance of any story, whether it's fictional or true, it lies in its ability to pull the reader into the story and to touch the deep passions and emotions of the reader. At at least uh, Lucy was feeling as if she was living the story, as if it were real. It turns out that Moses, who wrote some 3,500 years ago, was a brilliant storyteller as well. Moses understood the power of storytelling. And Moses used a particular storyline that threads its way throughout his writings The storyline is picked up by all other Old Testament writers uh, and even threads its way into the New Testament. So what is this storyline? Well, you may be surprised. Moses declared that my God is better than your God. That's it. That's the storyline. My God is better than your God. What? You don't remember that part? Well, maybe those weren't his exact words. Or maybe they were. Hmm. The scripture passage from today is from the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. If you want to turn there, uh, or you can just listen as I read it. The setting of the song is a song of praise after the Exodus and the defeat of the Egyptians. Starting with verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send it out in fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders?" This is the word of the Lord. Of course this song of Moses is poetic and meant to be taken poetically. But the question posed in verse 11, who is like you O Lord among the gods, is rhetorical. The implied answer is that there's no god like the God of Moses. But notice that Moses does not claim that there are no other gods. He only claims that his God is better than the other gods. You see, Moses really did say, my God is better than your God. Now, this, is, this is epic poetry. It's designed to capture the imagination. Imagery is an important part of storytelling, even biblical storytelling. Richard Pratt, in his book, He Gave Us Stories, described the importance of imagery. He writes, Old Testament writers gave their readers scenic views of Israel's history. They related much more than a list of bare facts and abstract principles. Through the use of vivid imagery, they invited their readers to have imaginative, sensory experiences of the past. So I would invite you this morning to enter into the world of biblical imagery, symbolism, and dramatic irony, as a way of understanding profound truth in a penetrating and passionate and visceral way. Now, we know that there's not really a thousand little gods running around out there. What does Moses mean by gods in verse 11? Well, there's been various interpretations. Some have said, well, he just means strong ones, mighty men, mighty warriors, Others have said, well, maybe it refers to angels. John Calvin, in his commentary to Exodus, said that gods means gods, idols, the idols that represented their gods. And so you see, Moses was prepared to take on a polytheistic culture and show the Israelites that they could trust their God, they could trust their leader Moses. As he leads them out of the bondage of a polytheistic culture and into the promised land where they could freely worship the one true God. Now it turns out that this theme, my God is better than your God, is repeated many times in Scripture. In Exodus 18, uh, upon hearing Moses retell the story of the Exodus, Jethro, his his father-in-law, the Midianite priest, said this, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. The psalmist in 135 says this, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Solomon, as he's preparing to build the temple, is seeking help from the Phoenicians who have craftsmen and supplies, and he's speaking to the king of Tyre for his need of help. And in 2 Chronicles 2.5, Solomon says this, The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all God's. Now, these biblical writers don't persuade us, they don't try to persuade us that there are no other gods. They write and speak as if there really are gods, as if the world really is polytheistic. Now, admittedly, this type of language seems foreign to us. It doesn't make sense, even mythological at times. It, 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 it opposes our modern sensibilities. What is all this talk of gods? Well, remember, Moses is a brilliant storyteller. Now, I want to expound two particular stories of Moses, one from Genesis and one from Exodus. And hopefully, you will see the brilliance of this interwoven theme and how it can awaken our souls. The writings of Moses are full of epic poetry, dramatic irony, Symbolism and often dripping with sarcasm. This is especially true of Genesis. The idea that my God is better than your God begins in Genesis, at the beginning. See, Genesis is not a history book, it's not a science book, it's a book of literature. Yes, there is a historical narrative. We know that there's a person Abraham. We know there's a person of Joseph. We know those stories. But beneath the historical narrative is another story, a story of epic poetry and drama, a story beneath the story. One story captures our intellect. The other story captures our passion. Chuck has explained it this way in the past. He's used the word literary genre. He's talked about the difference between being literal and literary. But today, I just want to think of it as two parallel stories. And I want to open up that story for you, the story beneath the story. And then you will understand why Moses proclaims that his God is better than all other gods. And when we are done, we're going to want to do the same. Now... In order to understand that story beneath the story, we first have to understand the setting in which Moses was writing. And that means we have to talk about, yes, a little bit of ancient pagan mythology. Now you are wishing Chuck was here. In the late 1800s, archaeologists discovered the ancient Assyrian capital city of Nineveh, Today it would be Mosul in Iraq. And within the ruins of this library, of this, of, within the ruins was a grand library uh, that was discovered. A library of the last great Assyrian king by the name of Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal. That's what I was going to name my son, Nathan. Ashur for short. Alas, he is just Nathan. But if you address him at the end of the service as Asher, he, he may respond. I don't know. So this library of preserved stone tablets uh, written with cuneiform writing uh, was discovered. These stone tablets are now preserved in the British Museum at London, and they contain many of these ancient Mesopotamian myths. Finally translated in the 1900s, uh, we now have insight into these religious traditions and cultures that Moses was inundated with. The myths talk about creation, about floods, about quarreling gods. It was likely that Moses was familiar with these pagan myths. In fact, it is almost certain that he was. He grew up in the court of Pharaoh. He was educated there. He knew the written and oral literature of the time. He understood all the Egyptian gods, all the religious ceremony. In fact, he probably likely had a broad understanding of pagan culture. And so I'm gonna propose this, that the literary structure of Genesis, in part, was designed by Moses to purposefully counter and oppose and correct those pagan myths. Hmm. I'll say that again. The literary structure of Genesis, in part, was designed by Moses to purposefully counter and oppose and correct the pagan myths. Now, lest you think I've lost my mind, I would invite you to thirdmill.org. Richard Pratt has a series called Primeval History, and in that series, the very first hour, he talks about Mesopotamian myths and how Moses wrote uh, based on those myths. The ancient Mesopotamian myth, entitled the Enuma Elish, describes the creation of man. It goes like this. The gods have a lot of laborious work to do. They're very tired. They've been working for thousands of years. If you can imagine a god that gets tired. And so one of the gods has an idea. His name is Marduk. He decides to create a race of people, humans, who would do the manual labor for them. And so Marduk creates man to work as slaves to the gods and to do manual labor. How did he do this? He did this by mixing dirt with the blood of a renegade God, a deposed God, a demon of sorts. And with the blood of a demon and with dirt, man is created into a race of slave labor. Moses counters with his own story. His God created man from the dust of the earth, but he did not mix the dust with demon blood but rather he took the dirt and breathed into it his own life-giving breath. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In addition, God created man not to be slaves, but to subdue the earth, to take dominion over the earth to live in a harmonious relationship with God. Our God created humankind with dignity and purpose. Now this, this is poetic drama that shouts, my God is better than your God. The Mesopotamian gods created humans for their own selfish purposes, for slave labor. The God of Moses creates man out of extreme love, for the purpose of having dominion and having a relationship. The contrast is stark and stunning. So if you read Genesis as a history book or a science book, you miss that whole story. At least you miss the story beneath the story. And you spend all your time debating the meaning of the word yom, Hebrew for day. Well, what is a day? Is it 24 hours? Or is it a long period of time? Or is there gaps between the 24 hours? Or maybe Moses was revealed in 24 hours, the episode of creation. But when you read Genesis literarily, you start to shout along with Moses, my God is better than your God. Moses urges the Israelites to trust him, to trust Yahweh and not to look back. The second story comes from Exodus. Actually, the Exodus itself and the Israelite struggle with the Egyptian Pharaoh. This, this struggle is posed literarily as a challenge among gods. This is how, this is the literary genre of the Bible. Moses proclaims his God greater than all the other Egyptian gods. In fact, Moses challenges the entire Egyptian pantheon. Pan meaning many, theos, God, the entire collection of gods. So have you wondered why there are certain plagues? Gnats, flies, locusts, why there were ten? Did God really just try one plague after another? He sends the first plague, then thinks to himself, well, that didn't really work, Pharaoh didn't change. Hmm, let me think of another one. He sends another plague out there. Well, that didn't really work either. Oh, but this third one, that's a good one. Let me send the third one. Did it really take him ten times to succeed? Hmm, what is going on here? What is the story beneath the story? So the setting is that Pharaoh is considered a god, the son of Ra, R-A, the sun god, He's the son of the sun god. Moses implores Pharaoh to relent to the Israelite god, but of course Pharaoh refuses. And so the god of Moses challenges Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian pantheon. And so each of these plagues could actually represent one or more Egyptian gods. And in each case, Yahweh reigns supreme. God himself explains to Moses what the purpose of these supernatural acts are, not to change Pharaoh's heart, but to show signs and wonders. If you want to read along with me in chapter 7 of Exodus, or you can just listen, I'm going to start with verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so Moses gives us the purpose of the plagues. In verse 3, I will multiply my signs and wonders. In verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is the purpose. It's a challenge among gods. Notice verse 1. See, I have made you like God. To Pharaoh, and Aaron shall be your prophet. This phrase made you like God to Pharaoh, this is dripping with sarcasm and dramatic irony. God and his representative on earth, Moses, will challenge the Egyptian gods and their representative on earth, Pharaoh. And in doing so, he will show that the God of Moses is better than all the Egyptian gods. Now, this is is very interesting because Moses grew up in the court of Pharaoh as a nobleman. And all during those years, Pharaoh was God to Moses. He was from the line of the sun god, Ra. Pharaoh was God to Moses. And in a dramatic twist, God changes this around and says, no, Moses, you will be God to Moses. To Pharaoh. This is great storytelling. Uh, this, is, this is dramatic storytelling from Moses. Now, the plagues are not necessarily one-to-one correlation with gods. The, the Egyptian gods are constantly changing. Their names change, and what they do changes over, over time. Uh, but let me propose this to you. There were three or more Egyptian gods of the Nile. The Nile was the life-giving Body of water for the entire Egyptian civilization was responsible for their uh, incredible success. There's a god, Happy, H-A-P-I, god of the Nile. A god, goddess, Isis, goddess of the Nile. Another god, Kunum, guardian of the Nile. And the first plague that Moses brings is what? He turns the Nile into blood the life-giving water of Egypt, he turns into blood, and not one of those gods could stop it. Not one of those gods that protect the Nile could stop Moses and his god. The Egyptians had a god, Hathor, goddess of flocks, represented by a cow's head. Another god, Apis, the fertility god, to make sure livestock uh, was maintained. The fifth plague of Moses was the death of livestock. There wasn't a single Egyptian god who could stop that. The Egyptians had Newt, goddess of the sky, Osiris, goddess of the crops, among others. And yet, Moses, the god of Moses, takes control of the sky, brings a hailstorm, takes control of the land, brings a swarm of locusts. And you know what? None of their gods could stop one of those. Their gods were impotent. The Egyptian god Horus, god of the day, and Pharaoh's own god, Ra, the god of the sun, the sun god. The ninth plague, Moses brings sudden darkness, and none of their gods could penetrate that darkness. And so we see that Moses becomes God to Pharaoh, literarily, and that the God of Moses is superior to the entire Egyptian pantheon. Now, this is brilliant storytelling by Moses, but not fictional storytelling. Truth told literarily. Truth told in a manner that really connects to our deepest passions, So no wonder Moses sings in his song, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? And so we have seen two stories that show this interwoven theme of Moses. The first, from Genesis, the story of creation and the superiority of the God of Israel to the weak and pathetic quarreling gods of Mesopotamia. The second, from Exodus, a story of rescue, a story of redemption, and the superiority of the God of Israel to the entire Egyptian pantheon of impotent gods. So why does this matter? Why do we need to understand the poetic drama of scripture? Why is engaging our passions important? And Why would a a theme like that be relevant to us today? Well, perhaps because we have, in a modern kind of way, lost this sense of wonder and realness in our God. We've really lost that kind of wonder. We're somewhat polytheistic ourselves, we're a bunch of polytheists. We have many idols, many gods in our own lives. Chuck has talked about this many times. And deep down, I think we actually believe that our God is just one of them. A little God. A puny God. Those gods with a little g. And why is that? Because we carry a concept of God that is sentimental rather than biblical. In fact, many today embrace what has been called moralistic therapeutic deism. I just made that up. Not really. Moralistic therapeutic deism, a view of God that says he exists to make us feel good about ourselves, to solve our problems. Jesus becomes just a good example to us. He's our teacher, our counselor, a moralistic teacher with good advice. Tim Keller said it this way Spirituality is a big thing in modern times. People say to themselves, I want an inward center, an inward peace, a sense of meaning. I want inward strength to reach my goals. But that, Keller says, is not a model of the gospel. Turns out that C.S. Lewis said this very same thing 50 years ago. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes, We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Not many people, I admit, would formulate a theology in precisely those terms, but a conception not very different lurks at the back of many minds. And so Lewis was saying that this God of Moses, the God that challenges all other gods, we now in modern times have converted that God into a little God, into God with a little g. But the Apostle Paul addresses this issue for us. In Athens and on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, you remember. You may remember that scene. You can turn to Acts 17, or you can just listen as I read. The setting is the Areopagus, a marketplace full of Athenian people. And Paul gets the opportunity to preach, to preach the gospel in that setting. And he gets us back on track. Because effectively what Paul does is he converts their little god, with a little g, back to a big God, and he takes our sentimental, moralistic God and converts it back for us to the God of Moses, to the real God. And he does this by actually capturing Moses' storyline. My God is better than your God. He takes that storyline that Moses had and explains then the superiority of his God to the Greek God's. And in doing so, reveals the true gospel. Starting in verse 22, Paul says this uh, of Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. There's a little sarcasm there. For as I passed along and observed the objects or idols of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God... What therefore you worship as unknown, this, or him, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind breath and life and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet actually, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, this, this is no ordinary God. This is not a Mesopotamian God, nor an Egyptian God, nor even a Greek God. This is the God of Moses. This is the incarnate, risen Christ who calls all to repentance, one who will come again in glory and will judge the living and the dead. Paul speaks to intellectuals, to artists, to architects, anyone there who might be in that marketplace. And that was a multicultural, multi-ethnic marketplace and a marketplace full of gods. He preaches Jesus, risen from among the dead, the true savior, the only way that the living God might be known. So this morning, let's put away our sentimentalism, our moralism. And we'll reconnect with the historic Jesus, the incarnate and resurrected Jesus. Let's go into our marketplace and proclaim Christ our King. So allow this passionate storyline of Moses, picked up and expanded by Paul to a full account of the gospel, to saturate you today. Let's join with Moses and proclaim this. The Lord is my strength, and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Let's pray. Father, you are the great and glorious God, majestic in holiness. We believe, yet help our unbelief. Soften our hearts with the passionate truth of Scripture that it would penetrate us deeply. Renew in us a sense of your majesty and a sense of your nearness. May the risen Christ be ever on our lips as we take this message to our marketplace. A marketplace full of gods, yet a marketplace in desperate need of the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When God revealed himself to Moses, he told Moses, I am who I am. So stand this morning, let's worship the God of Moses, the great I am.